You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'll be talking about technologies crossing the chasm with Sean Wang, author of the Coding Career Handbook and head of developer experience at Temporal.io. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, crossing the chasm. Sean, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Really appreciate having you here. Thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure. I've been following your work for uh, the, I don't know how long, many, many years. Um, we met in New York and uh, now we're meeting again online. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So uh, for folks who don't know you, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself, give a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. I am Sean. I'm originally from Singapore and moved to the States for college and then went into a first career in finance, which is actually where I first encountered Haskell because I was doing, I was an options trader and we needed to do some derivatives pricing. And you know, banks and they love functional programming for that sort of thing. I've um, heard this. And so, so I learned Haskell before I ever considered myself a software engineer and then uh, moved on to sort of quantitative hedge fund position where I'd use Python for uh, number crunching instead. And essentially got really stressed out at the whole finance part of the, the, the deal. And so decided to go all in on, on tech and software. And so did a career change when I was 30 uh, to, to tech. And, um, Embarked on my hardest language of all, JavaScript. Um, so <laughs> JavaScript took a, took a whole year to learn, and uh, ended up as a software engineer at Two Sigma. Then went to Netlify, AWS, uh, and now I'm head of developer experience at Temporal. Very cool. So uh, I got to admit that's a, that's an unusual progression of programming languages to learn. Number one Haskell, <laughs> number two Python, <laughs> and then JavaScript. Before that, it was Excel, you know, and VBA, uh, and then sure. Haskell. Yeah. But as far as like a you know what what people would traditionally like consider like an application development language, I guess Haskell first. That's a yeah. So did you have any like preconceptions going from Haskell to Python about like well this is wait this is how things work and I don't know maybe that um, did anyone talk to you about uh, things that seemed strange to you or or did you say things to people that seemed strange to them based on your Haskell background? Oh. I don't, look the only the main thing I miss is just like a clear uh, separation of what's I/O versus pure, uh-huh. uh, which like seems so normal to if you just did Haskell for two years, and I then bet, you're like, yeah. wait, th- why doesn't anyone else care about this? <laughs> 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 and then uh, yeah, so I, I think um, Python is probably the easy you know one of the easier languages to learn, obviously because you know, as most people say, it's kind of pseudocode that works. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's I think it was okay. I think maybe some of the Pythonic expressions on like how to deconstruct and reconstruct lists and dictionaries and stuff like that uh, it was a little bit weird to learn. And I think the modern Python is a little bit more complex than it, than it, than it was when I learned it, you know, five six years ago. Mm-hmm. But I think all in all, it was it was, it was reasonably good an easy change. Um, I, I mean, it's not like, I think most people when they grow up, like I, when I was growing up, when I was 12, I was exposed to basic. So it wasn't like, mm-hmm. I only know functional. <laughs> um, right. so, okay, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, I think it's okay. I think it, it, uh, it was a, it's a reasonable change. Nice. Maybe what's more interesting is that the reason we use Python is not because it was a better language, but it was because they had NumPy and pandas, mm. right? Which is just a much better library to use for crunching time series data. And Haskell didn't have anything like that. Well, I mean, okay, look, like the, the, the only reason really I use Haskell is because the, the bank that I worked at hired like a lot of the Haskell core team. Oh, like really? Leonard, yeah, uh, Leonard Augustin and Neil Mitchell were the, the two uh-huh. uh, 
computer scientists that I work with. Um, and so like, obviously it was just better work with them, but like once you're, once you leave that company, obviously you don't have that level of support. And so you, you draw, you fall back to something more popular. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about how that happens that you can have, like you mentioned earlier that in finance, there's a lot of, you know, Haskell programming going on. It's interesting that you, you know, you could find a language that is you know, outside of finance, maybe just very, very not widely used. I mean, we, we use it at work as it happens, but I know that we're, you know, at No Red Inc., but we're one of the few companies that does. So we're aware of that. <laughs> and yet inside this particular niche of finance, it seems to be have like outsized popularity compared to other domains. But then you also mentioned like Python is another example of something where in, as far as like scientific computing goes, for example, because of NumPy and you, you have really in pandas, you have a lot of really nice data processing libraries. And so Python C is sort of overrepresented there compared to, for example, in like web development as, as like a backend server technology. I'm kind of curious about your experience about like, why do you think that banks or, or, or financial institutions are more likely to choose Haskell than outside of there? So I have something that works in theory. I'm not sure okay. how, how real it is. So the simple fact is that, particularly for the, the domain that I was in, so I was in option pricing um, mm-hmm. or der- derivatives in general. Um, a lot of the times you do derivatives pricing by some sort of Monte Carlo simulation. And it's not just pricing, by the way, it's also risk management. In other words, you have to simulate a million possible alternative futures and then take an average over like, you know, what's your, what's your 99 percentile exposure to some kind of risk somewhere that you simulated. So simulation involves a lot of concurrent computation and functional programming mm. gives you the guarantees that you need uh, to, to run that at scale uh, in, in some kind of uh, sp- at some kind of speed. So I, that's my backwards rationale for why <laughs> financial companies seem to love OCaml and Scala and, and uh, Haskell so much. Well, OCaml just got multi-core support like this year. So that, that like just landed, like multi-core OCaml is a new thing. I don't know about like the, the actual implementation details, uh, but like okay. I, I do know, for example, that Jane Street has been using OCaml for like 15 years. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's just like the right language to think in more than it is about the, the actual execution. So yeah, exactly. Like there, there's the theory and then there's the, the reality, which, which may differ. Um, and yeah. now I think, of course, uh, I think the banks have patience because you're building mm. software to run a lot of times, like and, and potentially for like 50, 60 years. Right. So you're not going to iterate. Like math doesn't change. Like the 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 option <laughs> the, the math of option pricing last changed in 1987. Wow. So you're not iterating quickly. So you, so you you can sacrifice some prototyping speed for just correctness. You know, you mentioned um, a lot of software and banks last a long time. Something that I've heard but have not personally experienced is that a lot of banks today run a lot of COBOL. Like yeah. it's just like <laughs> decades old COBOL. And I've heard about it more in banking than in other institutions. And I've always wondered to what extent that's because they were maybe early adopters of the technology. Like they were just doing computing earlier than anybody else because there was, yeah, I, I don't that. know, more obviously applicable. And then now they just have, they, they got a huge legacy code base before anybody else did. And now they're kind of stuck with it. <laughs> I think so too. Uh, and also, but there's, there's a p- bit of me that thinks it didn't really matter what the language was. It just mattered mm. that the code base is something that has had, you know, 10, 20 years of, of production hardening to it. And whenever you just come to someone and propose a rewrite for that, 
um, you're not just accounting for like the the details of the language. You're also accounting for like okay, but like the the amount of time it'll take for us to discover rediscover all the edge cases again. Oh yeah, in this new code base, uh, it's just going to be too much. Um, so I think that's why people are hesitant to move. That said, and not to you know not to take this too far into like the the crypto discussion, I think it takes a real challenge for people to start re-examining their their basis of beliefs. In other words, if you have hard coded the fact that it takes three days to transfer money, right, across bank wires or whatever. Mm. And some competition comes along and says, I can do it in one second. Then eventually you're going to have to be forced to rewrite that. But until until you you have competition, then you have no real incentive to rewrite anything. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. It's also interesting to think about like how often technology changes happen at large institutions. Like you know, we, we sort of take it as a fact as like, oh, you know, Google writes a lot of Java and C++ and Go. Um, they didn't always write Go. I mean, that was the thing that sort of, you know, was invented at, at Google, Google uh, yeah. so so that they could use it. So, okay, that one makes sense. But like PHP at Facebook, they've always been a big PHP shop. I think Amazon's a big Java shop, if I remember right. And as far as I know, I don't really know of a whole lot of stories. I mean, other than... Google, you know, adopting Go, which they kind of invented, of a big company changing to anything after they've, you know, had a couple million lines of code written in something else. It seems to be a really rare occurrence. So one of the things that I, I've heard people ask, and like this sort of gets back to a, a tweet of yours recently that sort of was making the rounds recently about like, why aren't more companies using functional programming? And I think part of the answer is that a lot of companies look to bigger companies for their cues on what types of technologies to use and use that as sort of a social proof of like, this is not risky because Google's doing it, or this is not risky because Facebook's doing it. And if you pick this other lesser known technology, it's like, who's doing that? Like, are, are we going to be the only, are we going to look stupid if we're the only ones using this? And, and at the same time, all these big companies, like what are the odds they're going to rewrite in anything? What are the odds are going to move to anything uh, and any other technology? It's like, I don't know what's where's the precedent for that. It's it's really hard to find. It seems like they largely, even if it's COBOL, uh, and it's from you know fifty years ago, they tend to just keep doing what what they're doing because they have these, like you said, huge hardened legacy systems that are just really hard to justify rewriting in a different language. So I think, well, let me pause there. What what, what do you think of that? It went actually a slightly different direction than where I thought you were going because I thought you were okay. going to say that um, because these companies got started first, uh, started like maybe a generation or two ago, they used what whatever was popular at the time, and therefore yes. they they are there today. So, I mean, but isn't that like a endlessly perpetuating cycle? Are you are you just saying that you know it's a, it's a, no it's the not same at all actually from here on out? Well, so but obviously something changes because all of the big companies today are not using COBOL. Like if that yeah. if that were the explanation, then everybody would be using the first thing that was ever that popular, which is probably <laughs> COBOL. I mean, there was a point when COBOL was the number one most widely used programming language in business, bar none. And yet other languages took over. So how did that happen? And I think the answer is if you look at the, the companies that are, are really big today, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, all of those companies came up in the 1990s or later. So they didn't need to use COBOL because there was other stuff out there. They were using something that was more like the, either the, the hot new language or something that was like considered acceptable, like a reasonable choice, even though it wasn't necessarily what all the biggest companies were doing. And maybe 
it even gave them a competitive edge over like bigger companies that might have been using something you know like like oh, yeah. COBOL. I mean, Google does a ton of C which was, as I understand it, still you know pretty well established in the '90s. But like for example, I mean, you look at Python, right? Like uh, in the year 1995, how many big companies were using Python? Like zero. <laughs> it was a it was totally a fringe language. Like there's that famous Paul Graham essay, uh, the Python paradox, where he talks about how I think this is like. 2005 or something even where he talks about you know python's this hot new thing and you can get better programmers if you hire python programmers because those are the people who are working on the cutting edge i'm like oversimplifying the case that he's making but um he basically talks about how because python is this niche kind of fringe language but it's you know it's got some productivity benefits uh it's it's actually a hiring advantage if you use that against the grain of of uh, what's normal, but today Python's a totally mainstream language. So somehow it happens, and the question in my mind is how. And I think an example of this is just new companies start out small; they make unusual technology choices or non-mainstream technology choices. Some of those companies become huge, and then suddenly you have a huge company using that technology. And it's not weird anymore. (laughs) It's not fringe. The social proof is there, not because a big company adopted it, but because a small company adopted it and then became big. So like Dropbox is a huge Python shop. Now people can point to that and be like, oh, that's totally mainstream. Dropbox uses it and I know like Google, you know, used it somewhat at some point. And so there's lots of social proof for Python now that just did not exist like 15, 20 years ago. Even though Python is a language, I think it's like 30 years old now. I think it was like 1990, something like that when it came out. Yeah. 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 Well, time flies. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, Well, I should should also mention, you know, the reason I tweeted that was actually because of you, because I was listening to you on the podcast. Uh, on on modern web and uh, and then also thinking about the the talk that you did about why isn't f- functional programming the norm, which is a fantastic sure. title, ex- excellently executed, a Thank million you. views. Like I always I always consider like you know the the bar for like tech uh, speakers is is not as high as like regular YouTube. So if you uh, can get a million views on a talk, I think that's that's a that's the bar for a really really good talk, right? And a few people have reached it. You know, Anjana have reached it. Uh, you have, and uh, yeah, it's 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 my goal to 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 get there someday. Philip Roberts is another one on, on in the JavaScript side of things who who's uh, done a fantastic talk that has a few million views. So yeah, I mean, uh, it was just really nicely executed. So uh, for people who, you. who want your full <laughs> thoughts on that, go check out that talk because it was it's well done. Yeah, I mean that, that was more of a like how did we get here than like uh how how do you how does it change? Like, suppose that we agree already, which a lot of people don't, but <laughs> I happen to think that functional programming is pretty great or functional programming languages are pretty great. At least like, uh, okay. they, they, they certainly I f- can be. <laughs> I figured out the plan. You got to get, you got to make no red ink into a giant, like <laughs> trillion dollar company. And then people will start taking notice. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're growing pretty quickly now, actually. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we're actually ever going to be like a, you know, a mega corp or whatever, but uh but for now, I mean, you no, know, we, we got like 120 people. So, you know, we're right up there with, uh, with the biggest <laughs> of the big, but we are hiring. So, you know, uh, that's, that's, we're, we're going to continue growing. We'll see how far we go. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I have a counterpoint, which is WhatsApp. What's it? Sure. Okay. Right. So where are all the Elixir clones? Uh, well, I, I don't know the story so much as I know that WhatsApp attributes a lot of its, its success to the actor model, to Elixir and, and, you to know, they Erlang, got acquired actually. To Erlang, yeah, I always, I don't actually know the difference. Like, I know Elixir is yeah. a framework on Erlang, but like, I don't, you know, I don't know the difference. Oh, again, it's, it, it doesn't matter. Well, I'll clarify in a sec. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. Anyway, anyway, 
Like they they were uh I think Brian Acton and uh who's the other guy? Um I, I forget I forget the other guy's name. They they were rejected from Facebook, um, and then they built this chat app um and then you know eventually got acquired with 19 employees for something ridiculous like uh, right. a few billion dollars 13 billion dollars 19 million dollars something insane like just yeah. it's absolutely crazy a few bucks yeah <laughs> you would think you would think that people would st- sit up and take notice like and so my question is where are all the erlang based startups that would have been started after that news so <laughs> i actually think i i think there actually have been a lot. Like none of them are, as far as I know, anywhere near that level of success. But I actually think that WhatsApp was like very transformative in it, like Elixir specifically. So Elixir is a it's a different programming language than Erlang, but they compile to the same bytecode. It's it's like a dialect of uh, Erlang. It's it's got like a more Ruby like syntax and macros and stuff like that. And it's like, but it's totally compatible with Erlang. And I have seen a number of Elixir talks where, yeah, that's what they say is they're like, check it out. We're you can be like WhatsApp. And I've also seen startups <laughs> say, we chose this technology because we have similar problems to WhatsApp or, or you know, like like WhatsApp, I, I have seen it used as social proof a lot. Now, granted, that has not been enough for Elixir to become mainstream. But again, we're talking about a company that was successfully acquired, not something that's like, you know, independent, a, a top yeah. market cap, like, like WhatsApp, maybe a, a better analogy might be YouTube, um, something like that, where like, it was a really successful startup that got acquired by Google instead of Facebook. But like it, it wasn't, if YouTube were built on, I don't know, let's say Haskell, people would still say, you know, oh, you can, you should use Haskell because YouTube used it uh, or something like that. But that's not the same as saying like everybody at Google does Haskell. Like in the same way that like Facebook acquired WhatsApp, it's not the same thing as saying like everyone at Facebook does Elixir. I think it would be totally different, like much more, much stronger social proof if it were the the one with the stock ticker that everybody knows. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I use WhatsApp almost every day. So there's billions. Um, So eventually it has to break through. I just, I guess I'm impatient for it to to start happening. But, But if you think about it, I mean, if let's say that one of these Elixir startups that was using WhatsApp as social proof, um, whereas like maybe in you know, like before WhatsApp got acquired or before WhatsApp got big, maybe they would just have been like, uh, I don't know, let's use Go. That's what you, Google uses. Like maybe they wouldn't have even considered Elixir. What if one of those gets big? Now you have more social proof because you can point to WhatsApp and this other startup, you know? Uh, I, I think about uh, in Brazil, there's this apparently very large successful bank called Nubank. Um, and they actually hired not only the entire closure team, like the the, the core people who work on Clojure, um, but also <laughs> the guy who makes Elixir. So they've been very financially successful in Brazil, but not like worldwide. Now, maybe that will change. Maybe like they'll, they'll become a, a worldwide, you know, household name. But I imagine, uh, and this is totally supposition. Uh, I, I have no data on this one way or the other, but I imagine that if you're a developer in Brazil and you want to use Clojure, you have very obvious social proof. You're like, we're going to do it because Nubank did it. And before Nubank got big, they probably was... I, I imagine there was less closure usage in Brazil because they didn't have that social proof. That's my guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no clue either way on that one. Um, I have. Um, well, so there's there's also this concept of worse is better, and I have ah. been told that JavaScript is worse is better. Um, <laughs> and so, when does worse worse is better not become true? <laughs> when when does worse become actually worse? <laughs> <laughs> So I, I haven't read that essay in a long time, but I remember when I did read it having pretty mixed feelings because it seemed like what they were talking about was something along the lines of 
and I, I'm sure I'm getting this at least partially wrong, but uh, this is my memory of it was it was something along the lines of like perfect is the enemy of the good, but but kind of like a, with a different twist on it in the sense of like if you aim for too much like I don't know whatever correctness or guarantees or something like that, then uh, it'll like take you too long to solve the problem or something like that, and you'll lose out to somebody who's just like quick and dirty, get it done, ship it. Um, I think let's let's assume that's what we mean by worse is better even though yeah, i might sure. be, well actually let, let me ask do you think that's an accurate is my recollection of that the, the way, article right well i i haven't it's been a while since i read that article as well that you know mostly you just remember yeah. the title of these things uh my my interpretation of it is the first thing that is good enough that is first past the post mm. uh, wins okay so so what it what you know your bar is what is good enough rather than what is the best I see. So yeah, so like satisficing is a, is another yes. word I've heard for this. Um, yeah. Rather than like optimizing, you just find yeah. the first thing that satisfies your criteria and go with that. Um, yeah. I think that's that's certainly a thing that humans do. But I think if you're looking at a like you know brand new company like a startup or something like that, you don't necessarily have to do that. Like maybe you're like okay, let's just go with JavaScript because we already know it. But I, I know plenty of startups who are like, I'm sick of JavaScript. This is actually an opportunity to do something greenfield. Why don't we choose something that we like more than JavaScript, even if we're not as familiar with it, even if the ecosystem's not as big, et cetera. And in fact, it actually seems like I, I, I hear that type of thing more from startups than I do from uh, bigger companies. You know, even if they're like, yeah, we have a lot of pain with like JavaScript or Ruby or whatever it is. Um, they're like, yeah, but it would be so much work to rewrite. Whereas startups are just sort of like, oh, we don't have any code yet. So, you know, why not? In a different talk, I, I, I mentioned this, I told this story uh, briefly, but I remember there was another, um, there's another company that back in like 2013, when I first applied to NoRed Inc., um, I was interviewing at another company and that company had advertised that they were hiring Haskell developers. And I had not used Haskell, but I was interested in that because I was interested in functional programming. And that alone was enough to get me to apply. And then, when I got there, uh, I talked to the CTO. This is like, you know, like an eight-person company or whatever. Um, everybody talks to the CTO. <laughs> and I asked about the Haskell. You know, I was like, that's that's what got me interested in your company. And he was like, oh, yeah. We, we talked about it, but then we decided to go with something else because we actually wanted to be able to hire people. And I thought that was funny because I was like, that's the whole reason I applied. That's <laughs> yeah, the, whole exactly. thing, the whole thing that was interesting to me. Um, and, and that was the type of thing that Paul Graham was talking about with the Python paradox is that like par- paradoxically, if you use a language like Python was at the time and which like Haskell and Elm and, you know, OCaml and Clojure are today, um, a language that is not mainstream, but that has a group of programmers that are like really into it and really like want to use it, especially if those programmers tend to be like, you know, towards the upper end of the like skill and experience spectrum. Um, you can get a lot of good hires uh, that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. I mean, we're a like we're a company that makes products for English teachers. Um, that's not exactly like the hot thing right now, you know. Uh, it's it's like I guess crypto is the hot thing. I don't know what what's the hot thing right now, but <laughs> as long as I've uh, you know worked here, it's it's not been like um, you know we're not all like making headlines everywhere about like this is the thing that everybody wants to do with their programming career. And yet we get a ton of people applying because they want to use functional programming. They want to use like uh, functional programming languages, not just like, you know, Ramda. They want to use like Haskell and Elm, <laughs> like, like see, just like see what the, what, what it's like when it's like, this is the whole thing. It's not just like, you know, we've opted into it in this subset of a language that wasn't designed for it. It's like the whole experience is designed around this. Like you yeah. said, you know, like, uh, 
side effects actually are like a, a, a totally you know, separate thing. Like effects are like a first class concept in, in, in both languages. Um, and so, although, I mean, uh, a lot of bigger companies, maybe they're just like, you know, I'm Google come work for me. Right. They don't, they don't need some, some like unusual thing to draw good people to them. Um, for us, that's the thing. Like that's how we stand out is by using a non-mainstream language. And it's been super effective for us. Like before we used Elm, like when I joined, I, I did my interview in jQuery <laughs> in 2013. Uh, we were just joking about that, how, how, you know, how things change. Um, but, and at the time, I mean, it was really hard for us to hire people. It was like, cause we didn't have anything that, that was like appealing to us. Like, it's like, yeah, you and a million other startups, you know, you're going to change the world, whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> But then as soon as we got this, like this technology advantage, um, not only do we benefit from it in terms of like, it made it easier to make our software, but also in terms of like very, very much in terms of hiring. And I think a lot of people think it's the opposite. So, so, so just to close the loop, you said that when you talked to your CTO, you, they were considering moving away from, uh, functional programming, uh, but it sounds like you, you stuck to your guns. Oh no, sorry. That was a different company. That was when I was that I was, was interviewing at NoRidink and at a different company. The other ah. company was the Haskell one. NoRidink I was ah. interested in because of the product, like the, okay. what what they were building. Um, uh, and actually, not not the, the technology wasn't a selling point for NoRidink at all. Uh, it just became one later, uh, like after I'd I'd been there for like a year or two. Um, so uh, so going back to like sort of first past the post and satisficing and stuff like that, I think. If, if I'm a startup, like if I'm starting a startup right now, you know, in the middle of this podcast, like would I choose something mainstream or would I choose something that I think is not mainstream, but still like capable of solving whatever problems the startup's going to do while being like more esoteric sort of in the good way from a hiring perspective where like people want to come here to, to use it. I absolutely choose that. I, I like having had this experience, it's, it almost seems like it's like, it's like the, the rookie mistake is not to do that from my perspective it's like like oh you're using typescript oh you don't you don't know i see okay like well let me let me explain how this works like if you want to hire people and like you know and, and like get better technology benefits don't like you basically choose you know any any more esoteric language that you actually think is better um because yeah i mean you, you'll get to hire better people and you'll get better technology i think um i mean you did mention something really important earlier on though which is ecosystem um yes. like like uh, Python having a, uh, you know, a, a superlative, like number crunching ecosystem is a reason that people use that language. Um, I mean, it's like one of several, like Python in that, in that talk, uh, why isn't functional programming the norm? I, I cited Python as a language that has gotten big without a sort of like killer app like that. Um, and a lot of people were like, no, the killer apps data science. But what they forget is like, Python was big before data science. <laughs> it got even bigger with data science and even bigger with machine learning, but like it was already a mainstream language before either of those things came are, along. Are you talking like Django or are you, are you sure. something yeah. else? Okay. Yeah. I mean like, like Dropbox just built their whole business on Python, like the, for like file syncing, right? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't because of uh, like it's ML or statistics capabilities. They just were like, this is going to be a good language for this. Like Google, like Guido von Rossum, who created Python, worked at Google and then at Dropbox before Dropbox was big at either ML or uh, data science. So, you know, and, and granted, those are definitely what like kicked it up into the next tier of like, you know, at, at one point it was considered the most popular language in the world. I don't know if that's still true, but um, that was because of ML and, uh, and data science for sure. But uh, ML being machine learning. Um, 
uh, but, <laughs> I like it. Anyway. Specify. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's someone who talks about like functional programming a lot. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there's the ML, the meta language from the 1970s <laughs> that like Haskell and Elm are all descended from. But uh, I mean, that was the original ML. But now it's like nobody associates that with ML unless you're into functional programming. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so talking about satisficing, I think um, when it comes to like if I'm starting a startup, you know, I, I want to choose intentionally, like, because it's just straight out more beneficial, like another language, uh, than, than like a mainstream one, but there is that ecosystem question. And I think actually that's a really good example of satisficing where if I'm optimizing for ecosystem, well, obviously I'm going for like NPM or something. Cause it's like the biggest, um, well, if I'm optimizing by like availability <laughs> of packages, right? Like I, I want, if like, if, if volume is what I'm after, I'm like, whatever my use case is, I want to maximize the odds that I can pull something off the shelf and use it. Then like, yeah, you have to kind of go for the biggest, right? But what if you're not optimizing for that? What if you're just like, mostly what we're going to do is write in-house code, like our own custom stuff, because like our application is not just like gluing together some off the shelf stuff. And so like, then it becomes a question of, is the ecosystem sufficient? So this is a problem for languages like, I'll say Idris, for example. Um, Idris is like, uh, a programming language like with dependent types, which have been like one of the most widely discussed and I'm not going to say overhyped because I don't want to start a flame war. But um, so I didn't, let's, let's be clear that I did not say that dependent types are overhyped. So no one gets to start a flame war about my having said that because I did not say it, mm-hmm. but uh, certainly they've been widely discussed uh, for, for quite a while um, as like the next big thing. Uh, and Idris is a language that was, is designed for making dependent types like production ready. Like, like this is not, Previously, dependent types had been mostly used for like theorem proving and stuff. And here's like, we're going to build applications using dependent types. It's going to be awesome, but there's no ecosystem. Um, there's not like, I mean, it's, I, I'm not saying it's like non-existent, but it's 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 not at the level where you're like, if you want to go talk to a database with Idris, pretty sure I have not looked, but I'm pretty sure you got to write that database driver yourself. That's a lot of work. That's a really mm-hmm. big ask, you know, for like a startup or a- any business. Um and Haskell, it's right off the shelf. You just grab it. It's, it's not a problem. So for something like that, you know, if I'm looking at this, um, like like we, you know, uh, we use Haskell at work, we we did grab our database driver right off the shelf, but there were still some things like, especially for third-party SaaS offerings, like, you know, we use Bugsnag for error reporting. We did have to write our own Bugsnag, you know, like talk to their API. That's not a big project though. Like we're fine with that. That's just like some HTTP requests, you know? It's just like, you look at their API docs, like, okay, <laughs> sent to this endpoint with these these parameters it's like it's the bread and butter stuff we do talking to our own servers except we're talking to their servers instead it's not you know it's yeah. not like a how much time did that cost us not a lot um but how much time would it have cost us to write our own postgres data dra- database driver or mysql database driver a huge amount of time that's a binary interface that's like very error prone like i mean no thank you <laughs> that's that's not uh that's not something we would have wanted to to go down so I think that's that's sort of where the line is um, that I think like uh, satisfying or, or maybe I don't know if you want to call it worse is better or whatever, but like um, even though the Haskell ecosystem and the Elm ecosystems are much smaller than NPM, uh, than PIP, you know, uh, Ruby gems, um, they're big enough. And one thing that I like I like about them is that you know everything's type checked in them uh, compared to those ecosystems. Uh, and I guess you got like Maven, which is type checked. Um, well, with a lot more null pointer exceptions, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's not necessarily about like 
more is better. It's it's really there's like there's diminishing returns on the size of the ecosystem, but there's definitely a minimum threshold before it's below which it's like this is just it's going to take way too much time to reimplement everything. Can I? Um, so you mentioned database drivers as one problem for which you would move languages for, or at least yeah. it would actually influence language choice. I just do you have like a mental catalog of other hard problems that you just just refuse to touch, um, like you you would you much rather outsource. That's a great question. Um, I would say it depends on the domain. Like, are we talking front end versus back end versus? I mean, those are like front end, back end. What's, web what's a hard problem kind of to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, if I were making a game, there would probably be a totally different set of things. Like, I might be like, oh, I got to have an animation thing. I don't know. I'm just making that up. I I, I don't do game development, yeah. but um, so I, I suspect that it's it's domain specific as well as it is for for the ones that I domains that I know about. Um, but I also think about uh, it also depends on is there a workaround? So for example, um, like Elm has JavaScript interop. Haskell, you can you can do C interop if you really need to. Uh, that actually came up for us. We did do a little bit of C interop. Uh, I forget what that was for. I think it was um, for like error monitoring with New Relic or something. Like they have a C API you can use to like monitor some process stuff or something. Um, so if all else fails, you can do that. So, so we did that. Um, if you have something like that where you can be like, okay, this is not going to be as nice as we want, but the interop is going to let us get access to, you know, that huge chunk of code that otherwise is just going to be, uh, have to be rewritten from scratch, you know, uh, in house, then that's great because that's like, well, you know, it's, it's a little bit more costly than it would have been if we could just pull something nice off the shelf, but at least it's not having to do the entire thing. So to me, it, it you know, depending on the problem, it might, might depend on whether, um, something like that's available. I would say cryptography is an example of that. Like if there is a crypto library, oh man, that, that word is so, it's so broken now. I can't, I can't say it without everyone assuming I'm talking about Bitcoin or something, NFTs, cryptography. If I want to do cryptography, I want to encrypt something. Um, and there is not an off the shelf library either. Hopefully there's interop. Uh, I, I can get to it using interop. And if not, uh, that really gives me pause because it's very easy to try to re-implement that. And if you don't also re-implement all the tests, which would be a big project, uh, if you get something slightly wrong, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like cryptography I, I think, is not something I, really you want to. I'm going to display my ignorance of crypto here. So like my impression is that like there are only like three or four algorithms that we actually use. Everything else is kind of history or theory. Um, is that true or like how many how much are we talking i mean certainly the distribution of algorithms yeah it's like there's 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 a very sharp drop off after like the top 5 <laughs> in terms of like how widely they're used absolutely in okay. my experience well, you don't have to re-implement the whole world. Is what I'm saying. Like oh yeah, yeah, no, de- definitely not. But but even just like you know, let's say you're doing like SHA-256 or something like that. Um, just that by itself is like. I mean, okay. Now, now that I say it, like, I mean, maybe it's not that bad. Um, I think I talked you into it. <laughs> I, I've never, I never tried it, honestly. I, I was but, gonna, th- I was gonna say like elliptic curve or you know. Um, yeah, you know. I, and like I, I am not a cryptographer, so I, I don't <laughs> like my my depth of knowledge is limited there because I always get something off the shelf. Maybe a better way to say it is that like I'm scared of the idea of like rewriting that by myself without porting over all the tests if i'm porting over all the tests and i'm like okay i'm, I'm confident that like because it's just going to be a one-to-one translation right it's all it's all math it's all arithmetic it's not like uh yeah. you know th- there's going to be semantic differences between the languages well i mean maybe some languages do arithmetic a little bit differently than others like their numeric types and whatnot but as long as i've got all the tests ported over i'm not worried that i messed it up 
But if I don't port over all the tests, which is what I imagine would be the big scary part of the work, um, I would be pretty afraid that like I had an off by one error or something. And like most of the time it gets the same answer, but some of the time it doesn't. That's a scary thought. <laughs> would it be uh, entertaining to you to if I told you that all my option pricing work at, at the bank that I worked at had no tests? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm honestly, I, I wish I could say I'm shocked, but I mean, <laughs> I put in, I put in some sample inputs and then I got some sample outputs. I checked them and then I moved on with my day. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it, it, earlier in my career, I have worked at at least one big old company that was the same way. I mean, no tests for anything. Yeah. You just try it out for works. No, no QA either. Just, you know. If it yeah, seems I'm like it works, ship it. And then if it do- turns out it didn't work, oh, well, we'll go back and uh, we'll deal with it. <laughs> Bugs happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have I have one more theory for... So, <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I, I have... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't consider myself a lang- language theory an enthusiast even. I'm interested in it to the extent that I think that language is power, like language shapes the way that you mm. think. So I, I take a Sapir-Whorf... Um, uh, approach to programming languages. Cool. Um, but I feel like, you know, surveying what people consider to be advances in programming languages, I feel like um, languages haven't really advanced in a way that has been material to regular programmers for a long, mm. long time. Interesting. Um, so when you, when you talk about things like dependent types, which by the way, I have no idea what they are, but like, I don't care, you know, like <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, doesn't seem to improve my productivity in some meaningful fashion for the amount of cost that it takes me to to learn the thing. Um, uh, you know, and and maybe Rust is like the biggest advance in, and it, it's it's only starting to gain real traction now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, like to me, like one of the biggest advances in in language design or language theory is when you start to abstract away entire classes of problems mm-hmm. um, and you should just no longer think about it. Like it, it's just part of the language. Right. Um, and to me, like, it, so, you know, garbage collection is, is one of those things, right? Like when you just, Absolutely. It's, it's, what, what if your language just did the memory stuff for you? Right. Um, so I've been thinking in that field, like, like stop, stop screwing around with types. Like what would it take to eliminate, one entire class of inf- infrastructure or like just boilerplate problem. Um, so I, I'm curious on your thoughts on that uh, because I have a proposal. Oh, interesting. Okay. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what the proposal is. Uh, my, my thoughts briefly. Um, I, I hope that's true. I, I hope there's like a, or I hope that there's a, like the next garbage collection is right around the corner because I, I totally agree that, I mean, garbage collection becoming mainstream because I mean, it existed for a long, like decades before it, it, really kind of became popular but the fact that now you don't have to like it's unusual to have to manage memory manually um i think is is absolutely huge for uh being able to get stuff done quickly without making horrible bugs or security vulnerabilities and it's really underrated actually i mean i guess we just take it for granted at this point um There are definitely performance downsides, and there are plenty of people yes. who make some very good points about the cost of garbage collection, uh, like what 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 it has brought along with it. But uh, the idea of like automatic memory management, I guess, in general, um, very very powerful. I agree. I I don't see, I can't think of anything comparable to that, like on the level of garbage collection. Like I think that was the most recent big one. And although I have have developed increasingly strong language preferences, uh, or like preferences for the characteristics of languages that I'm using as my career has progressed. 
I, I don't think that any of them have been on that same level. So, I'm, but I'm curious to hear what you have, uh, what, what you're proposing. <laughs> yeah, what you got? <laughs> yeah. um, so, have you, have you followed um, Paul Vigar's work on Darklang? That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Dark, yeah. Because okay. <laughs> I, I, he got me started. Like, oh, okay, like, uh, you know, you think people language innovation is stuck in a rut. Like, um, and actually, we should be looking at blending language and infra together. Um, like what, what if they were just one and the same, right? And, and that's, yeah. if you really look at it, that's what kind of memory management is. Like you just, just give that problem to the runtime. And yes, there, there's problems with that. Yes, you lose control, but it's a very well-known handoff and you can take over, you can sort of drop down in, in abstraction if you, if you need that level of control, but most people don't. So I, I think in similar ways, like, uh, what Paul is doing with Darklang, um, well, he, he's, he's, you know, so far failed to do but uh i think he's he's sketching out a path which i think he's just early on i i i definitely think okay so one way to think about this is that dark is a sort of uh domain specific language which i don't mean like it's like a simple like toy thing but rather that like it's intensely focused on one particular domain which is like webs like web applications you know Mm -hmm. building the the entire like web server stack um, That's true. And, and the front end, uh, like all in one language, one editor, one ecosystem, everything all in, all in one place and using that to eliminate, yeah, like entire classes of problems. I love that ambition. Uh, I think it would be awesome if a lot more people were trying to do things like that. Um, I think it's, it's first of all, to Paul's credit to even attempt something that ambitious. And second of all, <laughs> let's cut him some slack on being the first person to ever try to do this, like uh, on this level. And like, I mean, how often do you see like immediate success with like the first approach that yeah, anyone right, tries exactly. to something like that? Right. Like he's, he's, it uh, helps crushing, that he's, he's crushing <laughs> into all the walls, right? Exactly. Like, like all the problems that, that, that are come from like trying this for the very first time. He's, he has to crash into those walls, uh, hopefully for everybody else. <laughs> um, and, hopefully he's successful. And like, I, I, I would love to see a world where like, then we we are pointing to there's social proof around something like dark, maybe dark itself, um, where we're like pointing at that. And it's like, yeah, look, this startup crushed it. They got huge because they didn't have to deal with the massive stack of infrastructure problems that, that everybody else has to deal with. That was just a huge competitive advantage for them. And I bet, especially if, uh, you know, I, I have not personally like written any dark programs, so I don't know like what the ergonomics are like, but I know that's something Paul cares about. That can very easily be like a hiring thing too. If, if people like the ergonomics, then that can be something that draws people to the language. And it's interesting to think about like, uh, maybe you can sidestep some of the ecosystem problems if like you're just taking care of a lot of that stuff anyway in the language. <laughs> and like, maybe you don't need, like things that you would need a library for or something off the shelf is just actually just part of your standard library maybe. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know enough about Dark to say that, but yeah. Yeah. So, so my my uh, observation, my generalization of what Dark is doing, um, and there's there's some of the companies that are kind of kind of coming at it from the other side, which is that you know programming and uh, sorry languages and infrastructure are going to come closer and closer together, um, and the the more that we assume in the runtime, the the better our, our programming involves, and then the more the infrastructure can optimize to that. So, in one sense, it's like a common interface to which uh, two sides can really. Uh, optimized towards, and so I, I call it the self-provisioning runtime in the sense that, um, w- w- like, what if your infra- like, what if your infrastructure could be provisioned uh, as you write the code for it? Um, 
so so uh, there there's inf- there's improvements on both sides. So kind of Pulumi uh, is, and and AWS CDK is kind of what I'm thinking about on the infrastructure side, where you're defining your your infrastructure in your programming language, but then then you also have to still write the code to wire it up because all these things are just compiling down to some. Uh, uh, intermediate uh, representation of your infrastructure, um, but what if you didn't have to do that, right? What, what if there was actually just a, a, um, a runtime that just understood uh, based on what you were using in your in your code uh, to pr- provision the infrastructure for it? This is kind of what I'm thinking about. Uh, serverless cloud is the other one that's coming at it from the programming language side, but then they also control the infrastructure. So it's just a really uh, ripe area of innovation. But I, I agree that it's kind of domain specific in the sense that yeah, yeah. all these are. All these things are for writing web apps. Um, and so I, I guess I'm displaying my biases there. <laughs> sure. I mean, well, it's a huge domain. It's like a ton of software development happens that domain. It's not It's not a tiny niche for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. one, uh, one other one worth talking about is Lamdera. So this is uh, something in the Elm community. It's L-A-M-D-E-R-A.com. Um, and basically, it's a way for you to write your Elm application. So Elm is like a front-end language. Uh, so write your UI in Elm. And then essentially, you can just keep writing Elm code that just describes sort of like, here's how I want my state to be persisted. And that code gets executed on the server and just takes care of the persistence for you. So it's a replacement for basically like all of the database work as well as all the networking work. Like those entire classes of problems are just taken care of for you. You're just writing like, here's the UI and here's what I want to be persisted. Please persist it for me. Thank you. And that's Fundamentally, I mean, when I'm like designing a user interface, that's those are the big things that I care about, obviously. Um, and so the fact that you know I can I, I'm, now, granted, that's not abstracting away like the entire concept of infrastructure, unless you you know use like their their hosted in infrastructure. Um, but it's definitely taking away like multiple categories of problems. I do actually know. I wish I knew the name of this startup actually, um, but I know a startup that's that's working on Lambda and. Uh, it was funny. I was on a, um, it was like a group hangout with a couple of people. Uh, we, we were talking about rock, the programming language I'm making. Um, and, uh, one person mentioned, we, we were going about introducing ourselves and one person said, Oh, uh, you know, I, I work at this uh, same where we worked. And, and they said, uh, I work at this startup, um, and we use Lambda. And the next thing that happened on that call was somebody else said, are you hiring? Like knowing <laughs> nothing else about the startup, just like, we are a startup. We are using Lambda. Yes. Hi, I have a question. Are you hiring? I would like to work there. No other questions, <laughs> you know, no other information, just that's it. Like I immediately want to apply there, which I think kind of speaks to the power both of like what we're talking about in terms of like, yeah, if you can eliminate entire categories of problems, like that's a big deal as it turns out, like <laughs> to, to a lot of people. And also the fact that like, you know, just the just how backwards the the notion is that like you got to use mainstream technologies or else you won't be able to hire anyone <laughs> that's true that's true um yeah well <clears throat> i don't know if there's there's another so there's another path that's newer to me i haven't thought as much about but maybe you have which is like um language models for turning things into distributed versions of themselves um ah, so are you talking about unison <laughs> I don't. I, I haven't actually played with it. I, I've heard about people have told me to look at it, but could you explain okay. what Unison does? So sure. Um, to speed. So so Unison. I mean, like one of the what's unique about Unison and what it sort of unlocks are sort of two different things. Um, the thing that it unlocks is being able to take code, like any arbitrary chunk of code, and just run it 
on any arbitrary piece of infrastructure, even if you know you're not like in charge of that or right. uh, th- they don't have your whole code base, you can just be like this expression. Just please run this for me with these inputs. You know, somebody, and and it can just happen. Um, the way that it achieves that is with this really novel system of how they represent uh, functions, especially like compiled functions, which is basically that in unison. And I'm I, I'm I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I'm not going to give us as nice a pitch as like uh, you know Runar or Paul, different Paul um, have uh, have uh, Paul Chusano and Runar Bjarnason um, are the two of the the people who make Unison. Um, they've given some talks about it, but uh, basically, it's like if I write a function in Unison, the way that Unison identifies that function is not by what I've named it but rather by a hash of the exact implementation of it, like the, the AST of the function. So essentially what matters is the structure of the code rather than the names. And when you write a new function in Unison, you actually have to sort of like commit it to this database. It's it's a little bit uh, different. No, it's very different. <laughs> it's, it's quite different from what we're used to where we just have a bunch of text files and that's like the canonical representation of everything. Unison does things like you, it's almost like you check your code into unison and say like, okay, I, I want to like commit what I've got here. Please like make the shahs of all my functions, etc. And it does all sorts of things with this. Now, one of these is like, because it does this, you can just be like, Hey, anybody, here's the like function. Here's the shah, just like run this. And, uh, unison does, uh, it's like, it's a pure functional language, like, like Elmer Haskell. Um, so you know, side effects are tracked and everything like that. Um, but the idea is that like any cluster, and I'm, I'm definitely not explaining this as well as they would. So you should please go to the source rather than my, like, like off the cuff explanation here. I think they've done some strange um, loop stuff that, that have in my watch. Yeah, for sure. Strange loop talks yeah. among others. Um, but basically it's like the, the fact that they, identify everything based on content hashes rather than by names makes subsections of your program a lot more portable than they are in like yes. any other language. Um, yeah. So as far as like automating, like moving to a distributed system, you know, type model, as far as like scaling your computation out, um, Unison's the language that I immediately think of as far as like pushing the boundaries well, of that. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm going for, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, kind of just sprinkle distributed um, and <laughs> I think I think that's another <clears throat> fruitful area of language design that um, maybe I don't see it talked about as much because people are obsessed with types for some reason. And you know, hey, there's more interesting problems than types. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that. Um, I mean, I, I'm a skeptic of a lot of the current. Uh, how do I say this? Um, I've heard a lot of people say blank is the future where blank is a type system feature. And I'm very skeptical of that whole yeah. category of claims. <laughs> okay. Whatever goes in that blank, I, 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 am, I have not heard something that I have not been skeptical of yet. Uh, whether that's gradual types or dependent types or uh, refinement types or, oh, what's another one? Uh, algebraic effects doesn't end in types, but also don't think that's that big of a deal. Um, uh, so, so yeah, like, uh, digression now. Uh, why, why is okay. uh, why are algebraic effects not that big of a deal? Because like React is going hard. Okay, enough. sure. So so you started your career in Haskell. Yes. Right. So you you're familiar with like doing I/O with like do do notation and stuff like that, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. How excited would you be if Haskell got algebraic effects? Uh, I, I I don't know. I, I've never worked with them. Like in theory, they sound cool. Well, know. but like okay, but like they they solve the same problem. They're just like a language feature instead of 
just having like a, a, a separate type called IO. I mean, granted, they, sure. they do have some like bells and whistles and stuff. I, I talked to Jared Forsyth about this a good bit at Strange Loop last year. Um, but uh and and he, he definitely pointed out some some cool cases. For example, like in Haskell, you can't like in the middle of a conditional, you can't say like if and then some sort of effect and then then like you gotta do it, you know, inside the do notation, give it a name, stuff like that. Okay, fine. How often am I doing that? Not that often. I don't, I, I don't consider that a big deal, but like, I mean, that's the level of like improvement that we're kind of talking about. And there's a lot of downsides too, such as um, if you're just using normal types for that type of stuff and just like having a separate type for effects and having a separate type for maybe or results or whatever you want to call it, or either in, in Haskell's case, um, you don't have to have uh, a whole language feature for that. But if you go into algebraic effects, all of a sudden you're really encouraged to make all of your error handling be a quote unquote effect, even though it's not effectful. Like you're encouraged to replace like result or maybe oh, it's with viral? Like exceptions. Yeah. Well, it's not that it's viral. It's that if you want <coughs> the ergonomic upsides of algebraic effects, you, you kind of need to do everything that way. Um, at least that's my perception. Now, like if you want to get the benefits, otherwise you're just, you're sort of like having a weird hybrid approach where you're like, well, we're using algebraic effects just for the effects, and those are set up to chain quite nicely and have things sort of bubble quite nicely, but not when it comes to like results and maybe those you do it like the other way. I would rather have a consistent code base that's just like, well, it's, it's all done in one way. Either everything's done with algebraic effects, in which case it's yeah. kind of weird that some of these things are, you know, yeah. treated like a, exceptions or everything's done with just normal types, like maybe result, IO, task, whatever. Um, so well, I, yeah. as, as, as someone who is used to, something that is from what I could tell has all the semantic benefits of algebraic effects or, or like 99% of them, I guess, which is like separating out the effects, you know, like that, that to me, that's the, the critical thing is like what the first thing that you mentioned when you were like, what I miss coming from Haskell to non Haskell is <laughs> the separation of effects from non effects. I totally agree. It's amazing having those separately. Like, and it's like, it's, it's just like, uh, I, I, I miss it. Like I do a lot of rust programming in my free time and, I miss having that separation. I, I I always think about it, but it's always like, oh God, I hope I'm not accidentally doing it here. Or like, I hope somebody else who modified this code didn't do it, you know? And like, I just, I don't have any guarantees around that anymore. Um, and I definitely miss that. Algebraic effects is one way to get you that. And so is just not having algebraic effects, just having it as like a, a type in the language. Um, so I think cool. it's, it, I, I can kind of put myself in the shoes of someone who like, you know, before I used Elm or Haskell or anything like that, um, understanding why that might sound really appealing because the alternative is something I'm unfamiliar with. Like I'm, I don't know this other way of doing it. That's like predates algebraic effects. And so algebraic effects look syntactically more familiar to me, even though they have that nice characteristic. So I can see why people might say like that. That's like a really, it's almost like a way to sneak in purity <laughs> to a language is like you can make it look like the language has side effects syntactically, ah. even though it has actually has that, that separation. Like that's exactly what Unison does. I mean, Unison's pure functional with algebraic effects. Um, and so syntactically, it looks like you're just woo, firing off a, a, a side effect right here in the middle of my function, you know, no syntactic difference. Um, but you, you do actually have to change the type of the function to mention the effect now because it's all tracked. Um, so you get the semantic benefit, but you, it's, I mean, uh, I'm really not trying to say that algebraic effects are just like a syntax sugar to make people more comfortable with purity, but I kind of think that's like 99% of the selling point to me. 
Sorry. Okay, that, that was a really good digression. <laughs> I, I'm glad I asked because uh, that's 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 really uh, insightful. Hey, I have opinions. I'm, I'm going to share them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the, I'll just I'll throw in the mentions in there. Um, so, so Swift has an, an like an actor uh, model, and then uh, we, we saw a talk where someone added uh, a keyword for distributed. So you just you take an actor, you, you just throw the distributed keyword in, on top of it, and now it can run anywhere. And uh, that's yeah. a, that's a very interesting thing that I think is maybe spreading to other languages. Uh, so maybe is it just Unison that's that's working on it? Where it's relevant to my job is that uh, so Temporal, Temporal is like a kind of like distributed system in a box, and mm-hmm. um, when you port code over to Temporal, it it uh, it can now run in any worker uh, that you uh, add on to it, like a scalable fleet mm-hmm. of workers. Um, and so I, I think about that a lot because I, I feel like that helps to eliminate like you having to write any coordination code with uh, with some distributed system stuff. Uh, and I think it's really nice. Really nice. Like I, I wish that more people investigated that and solved it for us i mean it would be real nice if distributed systems were easy uh instead of hard like, <laughs> like they are today yeah I, I i that's like certainly uh if someone can crack that nut and and make it so that it's like actually this is this is just very easy now i think uh a lot of people would be very interested in that for sure <laughs> trying to do that <laughs> good luck i mean yeah that's 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 a very important problem very valuable problem to be uh to be tackling yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, anything else we should talk about? Or are we uh, should we move on to picks? Well, so uh, I, mean, I mean, so let me, let me see because I feel like I feel like I, I had some uh, things that. Oh yeah, we yeah, were talking about crossing the chasm. Um, oh sure. Uh, one more thing, I one more talk I always bring up, which I don't know if you've seen, is Cheng Lu talking about um, crossing the chasm for Rescript or Reason ML. Oh yeah, I saw that. That was that was like two or three years ago. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I remember um, seeing it. So, uh, yeah, I'll just bring it up here because I always want uh, pe- more people to be exposed to these kinds of ideas. Mm. Uh, because it, they, to me, they all come in a unit. Uh, whether it's like the uh, you know whether it's the infrastructure side or like the distributed system side or like uh, the type system, uh, but also I care about the uh, community. And and so so Cheng Lu talk, talks talks about it in terms of. Uh, trying to design the language so that you eliminate a lot of the meta language, which, which is what he what he calls it in his talk. Um, so he so he I think he calls it taming the meta language. That's that's the name of the talk. Okay. And to him, the meta language is everything that's not core to the language, which is, which is libraries, which is uh, community, which is infrastructure. Uh, sorry, which is um, sort of. Uh, workshops, tutorials, blog posts, that sort of thing. And so like, basically saying, like, if you had a good enough design, then you wouldn't need all this. You, would, you wouldn't need docs. You wouldn't need uh, a whole bunch of advanced tutorials teaching you, all, you know, stuff that is just evident by design, right? Um, so I, I think it's a very interesting thing. But also, I think any sub, any uh, the kind of people that you hire, for example, when that, that say, you know, the, the moment you, you, you name the language like Lam, uh, Lambdera, um, yeah. those are early adopters who don't care um, about everything else, right. about the rest of the meta language. Uh, and they are very much at the, at the left, left-hand side of that curve, right? And, right. and for a language to cross the chasm, you have to cross over from people who don't care to people who care about uh, the, the, the meta language. Uh, the existence of jobs and uh, the 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 wealth of tutorials and stuff like that. So um, I guess where I'm professionally tied into this is that you know I, I 
worked as developer relations for Netlify and AWS and, and uh, helped those companies with their messaging and uh, created content for them. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like, I think I think a lot of maybe programming language people or, or developers like they think like you know if you design a good, good enough thing then you don't need the marketing you don't need the uh, content stuff but um, I, I guess uh, I'm very professionally inclined to to say like actually you do <laughs> oh absolutely yeah no question no question at all yeah I mean I, I think um, yeah like the the way that people. Well, I, I, maybe maybe for different reasons. I, I might think this for different reasons than you. I'm not sure. Let's find out. <laughs> so I actually think that the marketing type aspect of technologies is much more important for early adopters than for later on. Because I think I think the way that you cross the chasm is you cross a certain threshold of social proof. Like once, let's, let's imagine that three companies in like a row in the same year all had multi-billion dollar exits and they were built on Erlang. What do you think is going to be the hot new? Doesn't marketing does not matter in that scenario, right? Every other Y Combinator startup is going to be using Erlang the next year. You know, it's just going to be the hot thing because because of yeah. social proof. You're just like, yeah, look, look what they did, and mathematically, probably some of those startups are also going to succeed regardless of technology choice. And then so then there's even more social proof, and it probably just snowballs from there. So I think the question is, how do you get enough people to be early adopters to try it out to in in startups specifically, such that you get a sufficient volume of those that some of them get big and create the the levels of social proof needed for it to actually cross the chasm? To me, that's how you go from you know a, a language like and I think Python and Ruby are are probably the two big examples of growing in this way because if you look at like um like java i mean java had this huge marketing budget like i mean just just millions and millions and millions of dollars um python ruby did not like ruby got big because of because of rails and it got big by startups adopting rails it wasn't like google got into rails and now everyone's mm-hmm. like oh google uses it right no it's like shopify used rails and got big and that was social proof and then other people you know use it for like their personal blogs and stuff and like there there was enough accumulated social proof that rails became not just a defensible choice or like a but you know like a, a a popular choice and i think that's the critical element to crossing the chasm so i and i don't think honestly like as technologists i don't think we have that much direct influence over how that happens i think it more has to do with how successful are the businesses that use our technologies? How successful they end up being? One factor in that is technology, but it would be very, it would be extreme hubris to say like, oh, our technology is so good that it causes this startup to become a you know multi-billion dollar company. No, there are a million factors that go into that. Only one of which is technology. Like you can help, you can be a part of that success. You can even be a big part of that success. But like, no technology is like that good that it's just like, oh, actually, like the CEO, you know, is like makes one mistake per minute. And uh, and yet the technology was so good. It didn't matter. You know? No, of course not. Like you, the, a lot of things have to go right for a, a tiny startup to grow into one of these multi-billion dollar companies. And yet that seems to be how it happens, because, I mean, most companies are not, first of all, are not listening to this podcast. <laughs> Second of all, they're, they're not like they've never heard of almost all the technologies we talked about here right they've heard of they've heard of like the top 10 and like uh how do they find out about any new technology it's because they hear about it in headlines <laughs> like not yeah. not on uh you know like people like us who are who are interested in like uh, all the details so that's that's my theory on on how a language crosses the chasm it's like 
small company uses it, small company becomes huge company. Case that studies. A lot of, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> right. And that happens enough times or with one big enough company even. Um, and suddenly there's, there's social proof. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, I've definitely said something to the effect of by the time someone says like, it's big enough for, you know, underscore household name, uh, it's yeah. big enough for us. Uh, you've already made up 80% of your mind. Like the rest is just, the rest is just like, look at the docs, like look at, uh, you know, the, some example code. That's, that's about it. Like, <laughs> and I, I mean, I think like really the, the process by which a lot of organizations pick technology is really just two steps. One is there's a champion, like one person who's like really hype about one particular technology over others. And then two is everybody else is like, okay, you know, it's, it's really just like champion plus yeah. people going along with the champion. And at a lot of companies, you know, maybe you, cause I, I know this because I hear the story all the time is someone's like, um, I really want to use Elm at my company, but my manager won't do it because like they, they think it's too esoteric. And then I say, I'm sorry, that really sucks. We're hiring. And that's how <laughs> those conversations go. <laughs> I mean, really that's like, it's, it's, it's just about like, you know, risk tolerance levels and, and like how, how much social proof you need before you're willing to say yes. So there's plenty of champions out there. It's, I think it's, it's more often that, uh, you know, people yeah. aren't, uh, the, the approval phase is the sticking point more often than not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I just wanted to get that in and, um, nice. uh, always, always appreciate the, the ability to talk about, you know, a wide range of topics. Uh, I think you've been a champion for, for Elm for, for a long time. So, uh, I, I realized that I'm also preaching to the choir here. So <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. Um, cool. Should we, should we do some picks? Yeah, let's do some picks. All right. Uh, would you like to kick it off? Uh, well, so uh, it's just because I'm talking to you, uh, and I, I also take an opportunity to plug this in wherever I go. Um, uh, Elm was essentially founded out of Evan Chipley's like senior thesis at Harvard, and yep. he publishes it on the on the site. And when I read it, I was actually in a phase of trying to research uh, functional reactive programming, and he was the first to actually talk about like their four kinds, and here's here's the differences between them, and like yeah, there there are parts to dislike about all of them, and you know, um, uh-huh. and here's why Elm, Elm is the best, whatever. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I just I, it was just a clear elucidation of like the state of the industry or the technology at the time, and um, I just it's insightful. Like you don't you don't get to read this kind of paper very often. And so uh, I'm recommending Evan's concurrent FRP paper. Nice. Yeah, Evan's a great writer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do, I, do I do my, my second one as well? Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so um, I also do a personal uh, mixtape podcast. Um, so it's, it's just called The Swix Mixtape. Mix and um, cool. I, you know, every podcast I listen to, like there's usually some like five, 10 minute nugget of wisdom that I really enjoy. So I take that out mostly as a form of personal note-taking, but also as a form of podcast discovery. So when uh, people, you know, essentially subscribe to my feed, like uh, it's a way to follow along like the, th- the stuff that I found notable uh, and uh, people find a lot of interesting podcasts from there. So uh, that's my self-plug, which is the my own mixtape. Nice. I-, I just learned how to pronounce your Twitter name. So it's Swix. That's, that's how you yes. pronounce it. Cool. Yeah. All right. That's how I'm going to pronounce it from now on. Nice. <laughs> it's, my, it's my initials, uh, English and Chinese. Okay, got it. But it's yeah. but it's fun to pronounce that way. <laughs> it is. Uh, um, a friend of, friend of mine came up with it and it just stuck. Nice. All right. Um, I I also have two. Uh, one is I I just realized as we were talking I should totally make Lambda one of my picks because I think not enough people know about it. It's totally awesome. If you like Elm, then imagine if you could just write Elm and then 
that was it. Very cool. It's like obviously not you know necessarily going to work for every single use case, but like for use cases where that's what you want, it's it's totally sweet. Um, so lamdera.com, L-A-M-D-E-R-A. Uh, second pick is a book that I recently read uh, because it was highly recommended by a number of people. Um, it's called No Rules Rules. I don't know if you read this one. It's, it's about like how Netflix... The Netflix, yeah. Yeah, it's like how they run their business, um, which I didn't realize was very unusual, uh, to say the least. They have like a lot of <laughs> stuff that they do really differently from other companies, certainly any company I've ever worked at. Um, it's just really interesting to understand like uh, why they do it that way and like what their reasoning is and stuff like that. Um, I, I also understand immediately why not every company runs the, themselves that way, but it, it's just mm-hmm. like... It's interesting to just like get a peek at that and like understand how di- very different uh, a company like that is from like any place I've ever worked. <laughs> so, if you're interested in that type yeah. of stuff, check out No Rules Rules. Yeah, uh, and Patty McCord is also a really. Is it by Patty? Uh, I, I imagine it's by Patty. I don't or remember. Is it just Reed Hastings? So Patty was the head of office, HR. But I don't for, remember the, who they um, yeah, so Patty was the head of HR for most of that time that they implemented those those things. Uh, it's Reed um, Hastings and Aaron Meyer is the other author. Okay, all right. So, so this is telling the story from Reed Hastings' side. Patty probably has a separate book also talking about the Netflix culture deck. Interesting. Um, and yeah, it, uh, you know the the whole treat people like adults thing. It definitely like y- you have to wonder. So this is similar. Like culture is kind of programming for humans. Um, mm. whereas, you know, programming is programming for machines. Um, and you have to wonder where was Netflix successful because of this, or did it just, you know, was it just like the way that, that they wanted to work and it mm. didn't really matter? Like the way they just did in like the right industry, you know, video streaming that it happened to work or were they successful because they, they created this kind of culture where the, the, the people that they got and what, what they enabled their people to do, uh, created this kind of outcome. Uh, it's really hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. I, I don't even know how you'd begin to answer a question like that. <laughs> so, but it's similar, right? It's like similar to your programming language choice. Like you don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Interesting to think about for sure. Yeah. Well, anyway, cool. uh, I'll, I'll check that book out. I, I've been, uh, I, I, I'm a fan of Reed Hastings. I, I also just don't know how much like he's lucky versus skilled. That's all. <laughs> I mean, who knows how, how much of anything is that way? <laughs> exactly. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is a, a really entertaining conversation. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your taking the time. It's my pleasure. I always uh, love catching up with you too. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rich. <laughs>